this is Wayne Zell, and welcome to Blueprint for Wealth, a fast-paced half hour of special topics and special guests that are designed to help you realize your personal dreams of wealth and freedom. Blueprint for Wealth is brought to you by Zell Law, law firm located in Reston, Virginia, and Savannah, Georgia, serving clients all across the country on matters involving estates and trusts, taxes, business planning, and fiduciary services. If you'd like to know more about Zell Law, visit us on the web at zelllaw.com. Today, we're going to have a special topic and a special guest. Today's special topic is focused on the choice of entity, which is a very important topic for anybody starting up a business or trying to figure out what the right type of entity is for your business. So today's special topic is choice of entity, but focusing on sole proprietorships. So we're going to learn a little bit more about what a sole proprietorship is and why it may or may not be the best choice for you. First, what is a sole proprietorship? It's referring to a business that's run and owned by one owner. There's only one owner in a sole proprietorship. If you have two or more people owning a business together, it's going to be treated at least as a partnership automatically. With a sole proprietorship, you still may need to register the business for certain purposes. For example, the requirements vary from state to state, but in Virginia, you may have to register the business for the so-called BPOL tax, which is a gross receipts tax that every business, with few exceptions, pays in Virginia. You also may have to file for unemployment if you have employees, so you have to register the business as an employer. For federal purposes, you probably should get an employer ID number or taxpayer ID number for the business separate from your social security number. This will allow you to open bank accounts and do lots of things, including register, register the business for unemployment, federal unemployment tax. If you're operating the business under a fictitious name, if your name was Jim Jones, but you wanted to operate the business under, say, Jonesify, you would need to register that in the local jurisdiction where you're operating. And then, of course, if you want a special name that you want to protect for federal and state law purposes, you may want to get a trademark, but you may need a trademark attorney to help you with that. Sole proprietorships are treated as pass-through entities, if you will, for tax purposes, unless you elect special status. That means that all of your income and your expenses flow through and are reported on Schedule C on your tax return that is typically a Form 1040 that you would file. The losses that are generated from the business activities, particularly in the early years, may be used to offset not only the revenue from the business, but other income that you earn. But you've got to be careful. You can't lose money forever as a sole proprietorship. And the reason is that the IRS may treat the business that you're calling a business as a hobby, and they may disallow the excess losses and not allow you to use them against other income. Any income that you generate, net income, from the business is going to be subject to self-employment tax as a sole proprietor. That's the equivalent of federal uh, insurance contributions known as Social Security. But instead of you only paying Social Security for yourself, you're paying it as an employer. So it's generally twice the rate. 
And of course, if you've got income from self-employment and you've got net income from the business, you're going to have to start paying estimated taxes on special vouchers that are filed with the Internal Revenue Service on 1040 ES, as well as in your state of residence where you're working. These estimated taxes basically take the place of withholding taxes that you would normally generate. Now, sole proprietorships are rather risky ventures to be entering into. Why? Because the owner is personally liable for the business-related obligations and debts incurred while operating in a business. So what that means is, if you fail to pay a supplier and the supplier gets a judgment against you and against your business, you have to pay out of your personal assets. Of course, insurance is always advisable when you're conducting a business, but can it fully protect you? Not always. Commercial insurance, for example, typically doesn't cover slip and fall business uh, liability that might, might occur on your property. So you may need to make sure that you've got plenty of insurance, both commercial insurance and umbrella insurance to cover your activities. It's always recommended to get plenty of insurance, but even with insurance, it may not be enough and your insurance may have exclusions that aren't covered. So what do you do? You should incorporate. Incorporating means choosing between an LLC or a corporate form, a corporation, because those will afford you limited liability protection. Now, an interesting note, if you operate a business and you want your spouse involved, your spouse can be involved in the business without creating a partnership for tax purposes and therefore having to create an additional tax return on Form 1065. So the IRS has ruled that you can involve your spouse in the business without requiring them to be treated as an employee or as an owner of the business. It sort of goes against the general rule that someone who works in the business generally must be either an independent contractor, an employee, or an owner for purposes of operating the business. And in this way, if you involve your spouse and your spouse is willing to work for free, you can avoid rec record keeping that you would normally have to maintain and registration that you would normally have to maintain if the individual were treated as an employee. It also avoids additional self-employment tax that you would incur on treating the individual as an owner. So no partnership return is required in that instance. So that's a brief example of choice of entity involving a sole proprietorship. Usually we recommend against using a sole proprietorship. If you can, we would want to see you try to incorporate either as a limited liability company or a corporation. Future episodes of Blueprint for Wealth are going to deal with those types of entities, so stay tuned. And also stay tuned for our special guest who will be joining us momentarily. Thanks for watching Blueprint for Wealth. Hi, this is Wayne Zell, and welcome back to Blueprint for Wealth. And our special guest portion today, we're featuring Michelle Nakazawa, who is now the former EVP, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of TELUS Corporation. Welcome, Michelle. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Wayne. I appreciate it. I Hi. say former because why? 
What happened? Because as of about a week ago, uh, we officially announced both by public press release and SEC filings that I'm working towards retirement. And uh, I plan to stay on Atella still on the executive team, uh, working directly for the CEO, but giving sort of a nice timeline for transition, basically as long as they need. I'm an indentured servant still, so I'm not really out the door. <laughs> Well-deserved um, retirement. You've been working awfully hard these days. It's been a long, hard haul. That's right. That's right. Well, we'll get into that in a second. But uh, before that, I mean, Michelle, where did you where did you grow up? Where were you born? You know, where did you spend your youth? Yeah, so I, I was born in Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia, um, went through sort of Catholic schools there, and then my parents moved us in, I think it was the seventh grade. So eighth grade, I started uh, at a Catholic school in Baltimore, Maryland, then mm-hmm. I went to public school there uh, for four years for high school, and after that I stayed in that area and went to Goucher College, which at the time was an all-women's college, right. and uh I went four years there, got my bachelor's degree in chemistry. My sister-in-law went to Goucher. When did, when did you graduate from Goucher? Uh, I graduated in 79. Uh-huh. Well, so, loved it. You're, it's a great school. It's a great school. It's a great education. And you were a chemistry major. Chemistry major. So uh, did you become a chemist? Uh, I did, actually. Did you I really? I did become a chemist, yes. Did I actually worked for the Gerontology Research Center. Um, as a piece of NIH up okay. in the Baltimore area. And I also worked at the University of Maryland uh, hospitals, basically in one of their labs doing research for a short period of time. So how did you get into accounting of all? You know, that's a huge difference between the science of chemistry and the so-called science of accounting. Yes, it is. So it's a big transition. Everyone always asks me that. And I used to say I should have just made a tape so I could play it for everyone. But basically... Well, we're doing that right uh, now. Exactly. So now I don't have to say it anymore. Um, I was just trying to decide where to go with my life. I knew I wanted to go on further and pursue more advanced degrees, especially in the sciences, because you're going to be sort of a lab assistant unless you really go on and get like a PhD or something. But I wasn't sure at that point that I wanted to focus down on like one enzyme for the rest of my life. So I thought about it and I had some advisors and they said a lot of people try to combine business with chemistry and maybe work in pharmaceutical research or, um, you know, other uh, scientific fields where they need sort of a combination of the two degrees. So I thought that was intriguing. I took a few business classes locally in Baltimore, and then I decided I would actually pursue a master's degree in an area of business, which in the end was accounting. I had applied to American University. I got a research assistantship there where I was basically uh, an you know advisor, graduate assistant. Mm-hmm. So my whole graduate school was paid for. So that seemed like the way to go. And um, I worked my way through getting a master's degree in accounting. And what did you do after you got your master's in accounting? Uh, I actually worked for IBM for quite some time. Uh, I think it was 10 years, perhaps. And then I decided... Locally, were you were you here? I actually was in Manassas. Okay. And at the time, it was their federal systems division, Uh which they sold off. That wasn't my fault. I didn't (laughs) do that. But um, but believe it or not, I retired from IBM because I was actually starting my family. um, Two beautiful daughters. Two two kids at the time, and we actually did something pretty innovative at the time. 
for IBM in that they offered a friend of mine who was in a similar situation with two children at the time, same ages, Mm -hmm. to actually job share a position. So we covered the full-time position by splitting it, you know, two days of the week, three days of the week, et cetera. And that worked really, really well. Um, How long ago would that have been? Job sharing, that's way ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time. Um, Gosh, you're really making me think back. That's okay. It's a long time ago. um, But yeah, so IBM was great to work for. It was very innovative. They let us do that. And then the friend that I was job sharing, she basically was going to have a third child. So she was going to kind of step out of the picture. So I worked there for a bit longer, but then at some point I decided I needed to focus on family. And at the time they were offering an early retirement package. So I went to my boss and I said, can I take this early retirement? And he's like, but you're not who it's geared for. It's geared for old folks like me now. But you know, I was young then, believe it or not. But um, IBM made it work. So I actually got, you know, a decent package to leave at the time. It's not like what people who were really on the threshold of retiring got. But I was able to take off at that point and focus on the kids when they were little. And So how long were you out of the workforce and in the mom workforce? I want to say just a few short years, maybe three, four years. And then I basically started doing a few things with my accounting degree on the side, some accounting for some small businesses. Mm -hmm. And then I actually got in a a position where I was ultimately the controller at a small government contractor. Um, And I was able to make that flex around the kids' schedule where... Uh, they would be in school and then I would be able to get home in time for them. So I I really didn't want them to be sort of in a daycare situation at that point. So there was, you know, it it worked out. There was time between my husband and me. We were able to work the schedule together and and basically take care of the kids and do that part-time schedule. And then as they were, you know, older in school, I started working longer hours and and, and very long hours. Yeah. When well, did you ultimately, ultimately long hours, when yes. did you go to Telus? That's, that's a while I back. I went to Telus in 2004. Okay. Um, in the interim, after IBM, I had gone to another small government contractor um, that ultimately was bought out by a Belgian company. Hmm. Um, very close friends with that Belgian family still, so got that a little bit of international experience, and I was the CFO there for the U.S. and uh, division, mm. um, or the U.S. entity. And then I ended up finding my way to Telos um, through a mutual friend who knew another television that I know that you know, who Telosian. was the what chief you... operating officer. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so he interviewed me. I didn't really know him at the time. And that went well. So then I had to go through an interview process with four others, including uh, our CEO at Telus, is John Wood. And uh, we hit it off. And I've been there for 17 and a half years. So as the CFO. And what was it like going from a, a privately held government contractor to a publicly traded company on one of the big exchanges. What how, what was that transition like? How what did you learn? What were the challenges for you in that whole period? Because that's a major shift. It was a major shift. It was perhaps less of a shift for us because we actually were a public company prior 
to going through the most recent IPO. We were a public company um, because we had a public preferred stock instrument that was traded on the exchanges. Uh, but so we had to go through all the pain, if you will, of all the public filings. So we're very familiar with that. Mm -hmm. All the SEC requirements and the compliance requirements and the audit requirements um, without the benefits of having access to the actual capital markets for for capital and, and resources. So, um, so we had a piece of the puzzle already down and known. The new piece was when you have now an IPO and a common stock and it's publicly traded, you get a lot more interest, you have a lot more to deal with investor relations and earnings calls, and, and that was sort of the heavy lift for us, is getting used to that and being a lot more high profile in the markets. How was the preferred stock already uh, registered on the Securities and Exchange Commission? Uh, how was it treated as publicly traded at the time? Uh, it was that was an instrument I want to say from 1990, so it had wow. been publicly traded from well prior to my time. And so, for every wow. year that you were there, you were doing all these filings every anyway. year. So every it wasn't year. that new of an experience. The filing portion was not a new experience at all. Well, then that's you know I guess the trans. Well, I, I'll I'll speak from experience because I've taken a couple of public uh, companies public in the past myself. And I found that it, uh, you know, the, the actual registration process is extremely rigorous. Yes. Very, very difficult. Yes, and then is. now with Sarbanes-Oxley and all of the other reporting requirements that we've got, I, I imagine it's just a, a 24 by 7 job. Yes, it is. And it certainly is going to be a heavy lift for um the new CFO would tell us now, because one of the things that did change, because we only had a public preferred stock, we basically were a what's called a non-accelerated filer. So we didn't have to have, for example, the audit of internal controls or ICFR that is required uh, based on your filing status by the SEC mm -hmm. in accordance with Sarbanes-Oxley 404. But now we, we um, have passed that measurement threshold. We will have more accelerated filing deadlines and we'll have the additional burden of the audit of internal controls. So that's going to be a significant shift for Telos going forward as of next year. What was it like... Uh, going through that process with your comrades in arms, you know, ultimately you know, taking the company public and then these, uh, the ongoing experience of having to do these filings and the, you know, the, the reporting calls for the, uh, for the analysts. And what, is it, what did it feel like? What was the, the experience that, that you had emotionally? Because, you know, we, we all know the, it's very rigorous uh, in terms of the reporting requirements. But what was it like for you emotionally and, and as a team? How did that affect you all? Well, we were doing it during COVID. So that was the extra layer of complication. Hmm. So as a team, um, most people were quarantined but we really needed to be together in the office. So we had, even though most of our 300 and some employees that are in our Ashburn location were offsite, we had a very small core group that came into the office during that time. We called it our quarantine. <laughs> and basically we worked together uh, days and nights to get through the registration process. So it was really a lot of work. It was exciting. Uh, it was nerve wracking, obviously not knowing where we were going to land. We had some internal bets because our bankers felt that when we filed our registration statement, we would perhaps not get an SEC review since we had already been a filer. 
I didn't agree with that. They were right. Some of the lawyers <laughs> bet on that, and apparently there's some uh, bets owed there back and forth. <laughs> dinners but, um, dinners but and baseball games. Exactly. So, so that was good. That made it a little bit easier for us. And frankly, it was a very condensed timeline because we made the decision, I feel as though it was in June, Yes. And we had our IPO in November. And, the, and if you're familiar with that process, that's a really short timeline to go through. That's so, very short. Very, so very short. Very accelerated. Now, now you're on the verge of retiring, although I, I know that John Wood's not going to let you go you know, quietly into the night. But uh, you are on the verge of you know, turning over the mantle. What are you going to do in retirement? What do you want to do? What, what are your aspirations? Well, I'm still an indentured servant to Telos. <laughs> I have promised to John, even though... I'm not the CFO that I would stay on for a healthy transition for Telos, um, but you can see by my wrinkles that you know that clock was ticking for me. So, um, but now basically I want to uh, enjoy family. I have two daughters who are happily married with five grandkids. I'd like to spend a lot of time with them, and then just give myself a little bit of time after a timeline. I'm not sure. However, Telos needs me. I'll stay there as long as as needed, whether that's six months or a year. Um, and then just try to do a few things to enjoy myself, still trying to figure that out. I'm actually reading articles on what to do life after CFO, and I haven't gotten through the articles yet, so when I read them, I'll let you know. Are there articles on yes, life after CFO? I was reading one that's been put out by Deloitte, so we'll see. I mean, certainly you, you could you could do consulting and things like that. Certainly but... consulting, perhaps boards, yes. know, charitable work, charitable boards. The so. charitable work is something that's uh, that's appealing to me. I, you know, th there are so many great charities locally that we can we can help out. Correct. What is your passion? I mean, is there is there a cause that you really would like to uh, further in in, uh, in in these days coming up? Uh, well, I've always liked. I guess maybe the scientist in me. I've always liked kind of health-related um, areas. I was previously on a board at uh, the Loudoun Community Health Center, so Great. things like that are perhaps appealing. I am a woman. Uh, I am a woman. I know. I am a, a member. successful woman. I am a member of 100 Women Strong, which is a Loudoun um, philanthropic group, and um, I hope to continue in that group and continue with the causes that they advocate for locally. So those are the areas that, to me, come to mind most quickly without giving it a lot of thought. So where do you see the world of government contracting going in the days ahead? Um, I feel like where Telos is positioned, especially in the cybersecurity space, we all see what's happening all the time with all the hacks, et cetera. I feel like... Uh, I'm speaking from a Telos perspective, but government contracting, especially in that area, I see that as a growing area um, and, and a very exciting opportunity for both Telos and any other government contractor in that area. I feel like it, it's expanding and will continue to expand as it's, the threats heighten. Yeah, I mean, uh, to me, uh, it's, it's, it's astounding how threatened we are as a population, but as businesses are more exposed Companies like Telos are really protecting us. That's um, correct. Protecting the government, which protecting is trying the to government protect and business. protecting other uh, commercial entities and uh, cloud environments. For example, we're all putting more and more data out there in the cloud, so you know we need more and more protection. And the hackers are smart, so the bad guys are unfortunately smart. So they are. They're very smart. Smarter. What um, if you had to give advice to a young woman 
or a young man who's coming through uh, college, they're graduating, they're getting their graduate degree uh, in accounting or finance, what would be what would be your advice to them today? Um, well, first of all, I didn't, as you know, as I've said, pursue accounting initially. So I would say pursue your passion and that path can change. So think broadly about what path you want to go on. Don't always feel limited. But once you've found your path, uh, it takes a lot of hard work and you really have to love what you're doing. We've, I've definitely uh, put in the long hours, but it's very rewarding in the end and it's very exciting and there's a lot of opportunities out there. What was the greatest challenge you faced as, a, uh, as an executive over the years? Uh, well, at Telos, I think prior to having access to the most recent capital, we were resource constrained. So we always had to really run a tight ship. And, um, and we had um, some activist shareholders, for example. So we had to work with them and resolve that. And in the end, we were able to do that, frankly, as of the time of the IPO. So those were the two biggest hurdles over the years that I was there. Do you think uh, shareholders are becoming more activists uh, in these days and times? I think so. It Do you think it's so. good for the, for the economy or good for companies generally? Uh, it depends. I think if it's smart activism, yes, but sometimes I think it goes too far. What what would smart activism involve? Uh, I think if if there are cases truly of uh, corporate governance lapses, uh, it, you know, you, you feel as though you can obviously see things that the company should be doing and mm-hmm. aren't doing or vice versa they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing then that's the right time but oftentimes i think they're looking for any excuse for perhaps explanations of just operational performance that maybe is not up to what they are hoping for mm-hmm. but not everyone's perfect so um, you know, if then they're just looking for something to pick on, then that's the wrong time to be an activist. Yeah, and that's not a good activist either. No, that's no. that's a, a negative connotation to the activist shareholder. Exactly. Well, so. we've been talking with Michelle Nakazawa, and Michelle, it, you know, it's really been a pleasure to get to know you and to have you on Blueprint for Wealth. And all I can say is congratulations on a very successful tenure as the EVP and CFO of Telos, and I wish you absolute calm and peace in the coming days after you've been able to uh, extricate yourself from the daily rigors of being a CFO. Thanks, a, Wayne. I appreciate it. A great company. Maybe you have to catch me at like the lake or looking at a mountainside or something <laughs> as I try to relax. That, that'll definitely make you feel better. Exactly. Thanks. And thanks for listening to Blueprint for Wealth. Tune in next time for a special topic and a special guest. Have a great week. Thank you.